You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loinin, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Kurt, Madeline, Matthew, Matt the No-Beard, Mitch, and Nellie. And our newest Commodore, which I suppose I should have seen coming eventually, Commodore Obvious. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. It's time we take a look at the war. The Nine Years' War. We've been dancing around the edges of this thing for a while now, but it's where we're going to live moving forward. The story of the pirates in this conflict all takes place on the fringes, but today we're going to jump right into the thick of it. To look at the causes of this war, though, is almost futile. If you look close enough, you can go back to the Hundred Years' War, or take it back to Charlemagne, or the Norman invasion of England, or if you really want to go there, the Roman Empire, and, you know, the Teutoburger Wald. The conflict between France and Germany goes back into the mists of prehistory. That conflict lasted throughout almost all of recorded history until right about 1945. But we're not going to go into all of that, or the Reformation, or the Wars of Religion, or the Thirty Years' War, or the Three Anglo-Dutch Wars. Instead, I'm just going to remind you of the players that are active on this stage. On the one side, you have King Louis XIV of France, and on the other, you have everyone else. This is episode 172, The Williamite War. I would like to go back and point to a few key moments that lead up to this war, though. If you look back to the 1500s and the Barbary Corsairs, you will remember the Corsair leader, Hereddin Barbarossa. You'll remember that he was forced to winter one year on the Atlantic coast of France. During that winter, Barbarossa laid the groundwork for a Franco-Ottoman alliance that would last, in varying levels of officiality, until Napoleon Bonaparte. That long-lasting alliance might explain why King Louis chose not to join the Holy League 
when the Ottoman Turks invaded in 1686. That was the last great advance of the Ottomans into... Well, I was going to say Europe, but that's complicated. Nearly all of the forces that fought in that war were themselves European. Long-time listeners will remember our discussion of Vlad Dracula and the Golden Horde and their distant descendants marching all the way to the gates of Vienna. Now, the Holy League rallied Catholic armies from Germany and Austria, Poland, Hungary, even Spain and Portugal. All of the Catholic powers came together to fight the Turk. Just like the old days, right? Except France didn't join the fight, which is very unlike the old days. Instead, King Louis embarked on the War of the Reunions, which boils down to the French stabbing the rest of Catholic Europe in the back. Instead of riding for Vienna, France invaded the Rhineland. Now, the schism between Paris and Rome could be traced back to any number of locations, most notably the Great Schism. But the tension between this particular pope, Innocent XI, and King Louis of France could most directly be traced back to that decision. This particular act of treachery infuriated the Vatican, as well as their primary ally on earth, the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I. Now, Leopold could be, and often is, characterized as Louis' arch-nemesis. He is the leader that challenged France most frequently and with the most success. He's a Habsburg patriarch who should have been the most powerful person in the world. Leopold was the controlling interest in Germany and Austria and Spain, which of course gives him most of the New World, but for some reason, he still played second fiddle to King Louis. In part, that has to do with Spain's gradual decline and the separation of the Portuguese Empire from that of the Spanish, but really it has to do with France's ascendancy. Compared to the rest of the world, France was one of the most unified and cohesive political bodies that existed. It was on a par with the Ottoman Empire or the Chinese or the Mughal Empire before the European powers began to peck at her. Louis XIV, along with his ministers like Cardinal Mazarin and Jean-Baptiste Colbert, they got France into tip-top shape. They had the highest birth rate in Europe, along with the most dominant economy. But most importantly, and this is key, France's culture was hegemonic. Everyone in Europe spoke French. Everyone hired artists and artisans and architects from Paris if they could afford it. If they couldn't, they hired architects who copied the French style. Opera, theater, literature, philosophy, political theory, poetry, the very best was coming out of Paris. The Italians and the Austrians would have disagreed with that assessment, but they were wrong. Most English people probably would have begrudgingly admitted that to be the case, but they had their own personal grievances with the French which naturally is why they invited William III, Prince of Orange, to come over and invade England, to take the throne. So let's dig in. We're not going to spend much time on the continent, though. The first year of continental warfare wasn't really that interesting, nor was it very important, at least to our story. Picture a bunch of rich kids. I think about, like, a bully from an 80s high school movie, you know, a convertible and perfectly coiffed blonde hair and a white suit. Only these particular rich kids have those giant inbred Habsburg chins. 
Well, picture a group of kids like that riding around a battlefield in gleaming plate mail armor, swinging their swords, looking very noble and dashing. Meanwhile, a couple of hundred yards away, real soldiers are fighting the real battle. There's smoke, and there's blood, and there's fire, and limbs are being lost, and lives are being lost, but meanwhile, the important people up on the hill aren't taking a scratch. This was happening up and down the Rhine. But all of that, it's just too noble for me. You know, I'm looking for a story with a bit of backstabbing and intrigue. I want some double dealing. And it's here, to be found, just not on the continent. For that, we have to look elsewhere, and we're going to begin today in Ireland. Generally, the war in Ireland, the theater of the Nine Years' War that took place in Ireland and very northern England, is called the Williamite War, after William III. However, some people still today refer to it as the Jacobite War, after, naturally, James II. Those were the leaders of the two sides of this conflict, and there are political factions today that still use the name of this war to try and imply blame. But to say that James was really in charge here is not exactly accurate. He was only kind of in charge of the Jacobite army. Let's break down who exactly was fighting for King James. There were a few thousand Englishmen who were undeniably Jacobite loyalists, men who followed King James into exile and then followed him to Ireland. They were his, body and soul. But then there were about 6,000 French troops. Now, those were Louis' men, not James's. But some of them did have an interest in England. Many of them owned an English estate or had trading concerns with the English that might be disrupted should William stay on the throne. So they chose to fight for King James. Now, that's a small number of troops, but it's something we shouldn't minimize. The French were busy invading the Rhineland. Those 6,000 troops could have been used elsewhere to great effect, but Louis thought that this particular theater was important enough to invest them. However, the vast majority of the troops that fought in the Williamite War on the side of King James were Irish forces. Those are the troops that really interest me today mostly because this conflict will highlight the divisions that were already present in Irish society. Right now, there are a bunch of Irish sailors who are active in this bout of fighting. Names like William Burke and Robert Glover. Names that most of us probably don't yet know, but we will. They're going to turn pirate in only a couple of years. They're going to be sailing alongside the likes of Captain Kidd and Henry Avery. And then there are other names... Now, the most famous Irish pirate, probably the most famous, Anne Bonny, was not yet born. She would be born by the end of the Nine Years' War, but she was a small, small child through all of the fighting. However, these divisions would still have been present and would have formed her view of the world. But there is one other name I would like to note. There was a young boy, six or seven years old at the time, running around Ireland when this war broke out. His name was Edward Seagard, which is a name most of you probably don't know, but he will be known by a different, much more famous name, Edward England. There are a ton of Irish pirates in the story to come, and this is the world that will create them. The Irish Jacobites were Jacobites. They were willing, eager even, to take up arms in favor of James Stuart. 
but their motivations for doing so are complicated. To understand those motivations, we need to take a look at the man they were fighting for. Not King James, but his agent in Ireland, a man named Richard Talbot. The Irish Jacobite forces were, undeniably, Talbot's army. The Talbot family was among the most prominent Irish Catholic families in the lead-up to the English Civil War. The Talbots, like virtually anybody else who supported the Stuarts and any Catholic families in England, suffered terribly during the Cromwellian regime. If you think back to John Churchill, who at this point in our story is the Earl of Marlborough, you'll see a lot of similarities there between Talbot and Churchill. Both came from families loyal to the Stuarts who suffered during Cromwell's reign and then prospered quite a bit when the Stuarts were restored. In Talbot's case, when Charles took the throne, he was raised the first Earl of Tyrconnell, and then he was named the Lord Deputy of Ireland. In plainer terms, he was the Viceroy of Ireland. However, he wasn't some outsider foisted on the Irish people. The Talbot family hailed from Ireland, and Richard Talbot was raised a Catholic. The Irish Catholic majority of Ireland mostly liked him. Even the Protestants living up north more or less liked Talbot, at least they were able to work with him. Do you recall Sarah Churchill? I called her the First Lady of England, Marlborough's wife. If you think back to her story, she was made one of Anne Hyde's maids of honor. Anne Hyde being James' first wife, the Duchess of York. You might recall that Sarah was made a maid of honor only when her older sister caused a minor scandal there at court when she engaged in an affair with a slightly older, married Catholic man. That slightly older, married Catholic man was Richard Talbot. You can see why that might cause a scandal. That older sister... Francis Jennings was married off to a good Protestant boy to cover it up. However, a couple of funerals later, Francis Jennings was free to marry as she pleased without her husband or father getting in the way. Now, this all coincides perfectly with that coven of witches in King Louis's court. That coven who became so infamous for providing poison to the noble ladies of the French court to kill their husbands and fathers and whoever else might be getting in their way. Poison was suspected here in the case of Francis Jennings, but nonetheless, she was free to marry her old flame, Talbot. All that is to say, Francis Jennings married Talbot and became the First Lady of Ireland, while her younger sister, Sarah, married Churchill and began the road to becoming the First Lady of England. Do I think that these two women were involved in a clandestine conspiracy of covens of witches between Ireland, England, and France that put themselves in positions of power... No, as much as I'd like to. I think that their family was well-connected and these women were politically savvy enough to get themselves where they needed to be. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But the role of these women in this story should not be understated. Not just this story of the Nine Years' War or the Williamite War, but the rest of our whole story of pirates and piracy. These two Jennings women and their very close associates, Queen Mary and the future Queen Anne, are the primary political movers and shakers of this whole era. Now, I don't want to paint their husbands as a bunch of doofuses, you know, this isn't a bad sitcom. They were all formidable in their own right, But those four women are responsible for a ton of policy decisions that are going to hugely impact our story. Now, of course, this is probably the case throughout most of history, but we don't have documentation of that fact. Here, we do. These four women wrote each other letters all the time. While their husbands were unable to have any sort of official diplomatic contact since they were often at war with each other, these four women were able to write each other letters and provide a sort of back channel that really illuminates the whole era. So, Lord Tyrconnell and his wife were mostly well-liked in Ireland, but there was some tension there. The north of Ireland, what is today Northern Ireland, had a relatively large population of English Protestants. There were landowners and landlords. Beneath that, there was a relatively large middle class of English Protestant merchants. And then on the bottom, there was a large-ish lower class of Irish Catholics. This division in Irish society was readily apparent to everyone at the time and was causing problems. There was this policy of shifting control of the land and natural resources of Ireland away from the families that had controlled it for centuries and into the hand of English Protestants. For the most Minor offenses, you can imagine. A Catholic landowner might have their land taken by the government and handed off to an Englishman. Now, both King James and Lord Tyrconnell were complicit in this state of affairs. They profited from it in huge amounts. But they managed to avoid a lion's share of the blame here. They were able to shift nearly all of the blame away from themselves and onto that vile parliament that was putting political pressure on them. We see this kind of thing constantly in the modern world. Whenever a president or a prime minister fails to come through on a campaign promise, they can always blame it on the obstructionist Congress or the Parliament or whoever can take the blame without them taking a political hit. We see this everywhere. However, somehow, they still manage to get the job done for all of their wealthy donors. This is not new. It was in full effect here in Ireland. And 
Just like we realize that it's happening, the Irish were aware of it as well. They knew that King James and Lord Tyrconnell were pulling the wool over their eyes. But having an Irish Catholic in Tyrconnell's place, someone who fought for them on some issues, was better than having some English Protestant who would keep them under his boot. But then, William III invaded. King James was ousted. And initially, Tyrconnell supported the new king. He was, after all, merely a viceroy of England, and his support for William saved his position. But all the while, he was making moves behind the scenes. And then James informed him of his plans to make a landing in Ireland. Tyrconnell ordered his fellow Catholic lords secretly to rouse their forces for the Jacobite cause. Now the force that they raised was formidable, but internally they were divided. The Irish who supported King James all had very different reasons for doing so. Some believed that a restored King James could cow the Parliament. Now that he had a victory in the field, he could dictate terms to them. In that scenario, Ireland's Catholic majority could prosper. There were others, though, who were outright Irish nationalists. They believed, thanks to a few suggestions made by Tyrconnell, though not promises, but they believed that a restored King James would free Ireland from English authority, that he would make the Earl a new Irish king. And it looks like Tyrconnell may have actually believed this was a possibility. But if he did, that is just the worst kind of naivete. King James was, in almost every respect, a king in the mold of the Sun King. His sole goal was power. So much so that, despite being a Catholic himself, he saw the church as a bar to his own power. Both Louis and James were in the habit of appointing their own bishops, independent of any kind of papal authority. Nobody else was doing this, and the Vatican hated it. It personally infuriated the Pope. It infuriated him so much that... Well, I want to preface this. This little tidbit only came out a few years ago, and it's still somewhat controversial. There are some recently revealed Vatican records that show us that Pope Innocent XI clandestinely funded the invasion of William III. The Pope paid a Protestant king to invade England and overthrow a Catholic. Which, aside from any religious implications here, has a lot more to do with power itself. The Habsburgs, who were joined at the hip with the Vatican, hated King Louis and therefore hated his ally... James II. Regardless, James was never going to relinquish control over Ireland to anyone. But the Irish nationalists did not yet know that. For the time being, they put James in a very strong position. He had this surge of support in Ireland, and he had a strong base there in Scotland. Remember, his family came from Scotland originally. Not to mention, he had the support of France. Essentially, they had England surrounded. The only lifeline the English had was the crossing to the Netherlands. If you'll forgive a bit of armchair generalship here, there is a world in which, had King James taken the time to secure his bases of power in Ireland and Scotland, he could have choked England. He could have choked the support for William away. It would still have been a tough fight, 
The Scottish don't have the population, the Irish don't have the ships to compare with what the English had, but there's a world in which it could have worked. However, that's not what James did. Instead, even before he landed in Ireland, he ordered almost 40% of all of the Irish soldiers that had been raised by Tyrconnell to make a landing in England. Now I can see why he might have done so, and we'll discuss that in a minute, but looking back on it, well, you can choose your favorite aphorism here. Personally, I like putting the cart before the horse. Sending so many of his troops over to England seriously weakened James' position in Ireland. And Ireland, though largely behind him, was not yet won. Those English Protestants in the north, Williamites, all of them, roused what's called the Army of the North. This would prove to be James' downfall, although at the time he didn't know it. When he landed in Ireland on the 9th of March, 1689, James' military position was still good. His forces in Ireland outnumbered the Williamites. He had a toehold in England with Scotland to their rear. And there, in March of 1689, it looked like William III might just play right into his plans. William was not even in England at the time. He'd sailed back to Amsterdam where he was orchestrating the war against France. I mean, that was the main stage here. His wife, Mary, was still in England, but she had very little say over military matters. There was a moment where it looked like William was going to let the British fight this thing out on their own and then sweep in and clean up the leftovers. But the Earl of Marlborough, John Churchill, saw the flaw in this plan and sailed to Amsterdam to personally speak to William and tell him what a bad idea it was. If William ignored this Irish battlefield, he would lose the support of the Irish Protestants. Therefore, he would lose Ireland, and that would virtually hand Ireland and Scotland to King James, who, as we said, would have England surrounded. This plan... Marlborough alleged, would see London besieged within a year. William saw the wisdom here, and he sighed and sailed for Ireland. The fighting that followed isn't going to concern us here today. The tactics and strategy used in the Williamite War have virtually nothing to do with pirates, at least in this early stage. We will talk more about tactics next time, but for now, mostly, we're looking at sieges and a few large-ish but indecisive battles. Overall, the war seemed to favor the Jacobites, though. They won more than they lost, largely due to their numerical advantage. But as the weeks dragged on, even though the Jacobites continued to win most of their engagements, it was becoming clear that they couldn't keep it up. The force that James landed in England was defeated. And here is where I want to cut him a little slack on that. He landed those troops on English soil in an attempt to secure his supply routes. A beachhead in England would allow him to keep the Irish Sea clear. This was necessary because most of their supplies were supposed to be coming from France. Louis was going to send them guns and food and shoes and troops. But now that they'd lost, they began to suffer shortages. The Jacobites had to lean harder and harder on the people of Southern Ireland. For clothes and food and shoes, this was a burden, but it was possible. However, the people of Ireland, 
southern Ireland at least, had very little in the way of armaments. Shot and powder were in short supply. I mean, it's not like the English were going to let them arm themselves as they pleased. On the other hand, the North, who was populated, remember, by English Protestants, was really, really well supplied. They had all the food and warm clothes and shot and powder and new muskets and good boots that they could wish for. In a mere few weeks, the situation for the Irish Jacobites began to look hopeless. And everybody saw that. All of those Irish nationalists began to question just what they were fighting for. Were they fighting to put James on the throne and therefore subjugate themselves to the English? Or were they fighting for an independent Ireland? Had James been willing to take that hit, had he come right out and said, yeah, put me on the thrones of Scotland and England and I'll free the Irish, had he done that, he might have been able to win this war. Maybe, if that were the case, he could have turned the tide of the entire Nine Years' War. I mean, maybe not, it was still an underdog fight, but at least we would probably get a whole lot of revolutionary pirate stuff out of it. Breaking blockades and attacking the navy in clandestine nighttime raids, you know, Grace O'Malley come again, that kind of thing. But he did not. James dithered on his claim to Ireland, and thus his support from the Irish nationalist faction just melted away. They began to desert his army in huge numbers. They started engaging in guerrilla warfare against, yes, the English Protestants, but also the Jacobites. Anyone on Irish soil fighting against their cause was an enemy. The fighting was far from over in this war, but who was going to win was no longer in question. The Earl of Tyrconnell pulled his support for the war. He began arguing for a negotiated settlement with King William. James deserted his Jacobite army and he fled back to France. That was his last real contribution to the war effort. The rest of his life would be spent in exile. King William, realizing this war was won, returned to the Continental Front. He sent Marlborough in to mop things up. Now, Marlborough would go on to prove himself and some of his radical military ideas in what was quickly devolving into essentially an Irish civil war. He did so well that William would have preferred to use his services elsewhere, but he was unable to, because even though everybody knew that this war was over, King Louis kept it going. He kept this trickle of money and guns and propaganda flowing slowly but flowing into Scotland and Ireland. It was never enough, you understand. He never sent the good stuff. A ship with a few dozen old out-of-repair muskets, a couple of bushels of wheat, and a few bags of coin. Just enough to keep the Jacobites limping along. But he also sent his assurances, promising that he had Ireland's best interest at heart. It wasn't much, and it certainly wasn't enough to win, but it was enough to keep that hard core of Irish revolutionaries fighting. They were enough, with France's support, to divert English soldiers away from the front and to Ireland. And that story is kind of fun. We get to see some of Marlborough's tactics at use. We get to see the drama between the two Jennings women. But it is, in the big picture at least, a sidebar to our story. So there for now at least, we're going to leave Ireland behind. Next time we're going to turn our eyes to the west, across the Atlantic, where another theater was heating up. A theater that, 
more than England and more than Ireland, was going to birth a whole new generation of pirates. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilly. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight